Back in 1988, I went to Panama City Beach, Florida. I don't know if you've ever been there. It's kind of near the panhandle. And I was with a group of college students. We stayed on the beach for the summer. We were in efficiencies. The guys were on one side. The girls were on the other. And our mission was to evangelize the beach at Panama City Beach, Florida. And I remember they assigned all of us different churches that we had to go to. And I was assigned to a Methodist church with a number of uh, students. And that particular Sunday, we had a guest speaker come, and his name was Rick Stanley. Now, Rick Stanley is the stepbrother of Elvis Presley. And so it was a treat to have Elvis's stepbrother there. Rick Stanley was part of the drug culture and was part of that hippie culture, and he came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And God began to use him as an evangelist. In fact, I think he recently passed away in the last three years. Rick Stanley, after he got done preaching, I went up to him and I said, I have two questions for you. Number one, is Elvis still alive? That was the question I wanted to ask because there were rumors, remember in the 80s, that Elvis was still walking around, and he said, nah, don't believe that garbage. And then secondly, I said, do you believe that your brother Elvis is in heaven? And he said, I think he is. He said, before he died, I remember he said to me, Rick, I got to get my life right with Jesus Christ. And he said, they knelt down and they prayed together. All of us know that Elvis had a biblical background. And so Rick Stanley preached that particular Sunday evening. And I'll never forget, he said that he was staying in a hotel and there was a group of people by the pool. They were partying, both young men and young women. And he felt the Lord prompt them, him to go over to them and ask them to come to the Sunday night service. He talked about how he was intimidated. He didn't want to do it, <clears throat> but he wanted to be bold in his faith for Jesus Christ. And so he approached them and he invited them to come out. Do you struggle with boldness in your faith for Jesus Christ? Have you ever been ashamed of Jesus Christ? Has there ever been an opportunity for you to take a stand and you just didn't do it? I've been ashamed at times. There have been times where God has opened doors in my life and I didn't take advantage of it because I was intimidated. How can we be bold for Jesus Christ? How can we grow in that? How can we better take a stand for Jesus Christ? Well, that's what we want to talk about because Paul is going to challenge Timothy to be bold in his faith. So turn, if you will, to 2 Timothy chapter 1. We are beginning a new book this morning. It is the book of 2 Timothy, and we are chapter 1, and the title of this message is How to Grow in Your Boldness for Jesus Christ, or How to Be Unashamed for Christ. Now, I know some of you are thinking right out the outset, well, does boldness mean that I need to walk up to a stranger, grab him by the, repel, uh, the lapels, and say, turn or burn? Some of us think we have to be like a bull in a china shop, and that's not what I'm talking about with boldness. Now, there may be times where God will prompt you to share with somebody that you don't know. The Bible says that we are to act wisely towards outsiders in Colossians chapter 4. In other words, we have to use wisdom. And so boldness does not mean that basically we're irresponsible. It doesn't mean that we walk up to people cold turkey and we start preaching at them, although if God leads you to do that, that's fine. We have to use wisdom, but the Bible calls us to take a stand for Jesus Christ. And unfortunately, too many Christians today are ashamed of Jesus Christ in the American church. There is a spirit of fear 
that has blanketed the American church. And God wants us to be bold in our faith. Now, the Apostle Paul, this was his last letter to Timothy before Nero was going to take off his head. And he writes this letter primarily to motivate Timothy. Now, you remember from the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul engaged in three missionary journeys. On these missionary journeys, he planted churches, and then later on, he wrote letters to these churches. Well, after the end of his third missionary journey, we know from the Bible that Paul was arrested and he was taken to Rome, and he was under house arrest for about two years. And it was during that time that he was under house arrest that he wrote his prison epistles. He wrote Philippians, he wrote Ephesians, he wrote Colossians, and he wrote Philemon. He had somewhat freedom under house arrest. He could have people visit him and take care of his needs. And then after the end of two years, Paul was let loose, and he did a fourth missionary journey that's not recorded in the Bible specifically, but if you piece together some of his letters, we know that he did a fourth missionary journey, and one of his goals was to go to Spain. Well, at some point, he was rearrested. He wrote 1 Timothy, he wrote Titus on that fourth missionary journey, and then about two years later, he was rearrested, but this time he was taken to Rome and not under house arrest, but rather he was placed in a dungeon. It was called the Mamertine Prison. The Mamertine Prison, they typically stack them on top of each other. Many times they would put prisoners in these dungeons, and then they would allow the city uh, sewage to come into the dungeon, and that's exactly how they met their fate, was they would drown in the city sewage. Well, Paul was a Roman citizen, so he couldn't die that way. He couldn't die by crucifixion. That's why Nero took off his head. Now, we don't know why Paul got rearrested specifically, but we can surmise that Nero was on the throne, Nero was a maniac, and Nero had a fetish for building. And so tradition says that Nero burnt Rome down himself, and then he blamed it on the Christians, and he began to persecute the Christians. And so Nero would have no doubt known about Paul being the ringleader of Christianity, and so maybe Nero was the one that had him rearrested. Or if you read 2 Timothy chapter 4, he mentions a man by Alexander the coppersmith, and he says, Alexander has done me a great deal of harm. He says the Lord will repay him. Maybe Alexander was the one who had him rearrested. Now, where exactly was he arrested? We don't know, but he may give us a hint in chapter 4. If you'll notice chapter 4, verse 12, Paul says this to Timothy. Rather, in verse 13, he says, When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas and my scrolls, especially the parchments. And so this verse seems to indicate that Paul was taken away abruptly, and he left his coat and his scrolls, and he wanted Timothy to get them for him. And so he may have been rearrested in Troas and taken to the Mamertine prison. Now, Paul knew that this was his last letter to Timothy because he says at the end of chapter 4, I have fought the good fight, I have run the race, I have kept the faith. Now is in store for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord has promised me. And so he knew that the end was coming. And so he wanted to motivate Timothy. Timothy was on the other part of the world. Paul was in Rome. Timothy was in Ephesus, and Timothy was the pastor at the church at Ephesus, and Timothy was a type B personality. He wasn't a type A personality. He wasn't bold. 
He wasn't strong like the Apostle Paul. And so Timothy was struggling with timidity. He was struggling with fear. In fact, in chapter 1, he mentions the word unashamed four times because Timothy was struggling with being ashamed. In fact, Timothy was disengaging from using his gifts. And so the Apostle Paul, knowing that he's going to die, wants to pass the baton down to Timothy because he wanted Timothy to preserve the truth. Timothy was dealing with high-powered false teachers in Ephesus. He was dealing with persecution on the outside. And so Timothy was in the process of basically being ashamed of Jesus Christ. And so he writes this letter to motivate Timothy, to challenge Timothy not to be ashamed. In fact, in this letter, he gives 25 imperatives. An imperative in the Greek is a command. He gives 25 of them. Nine of them are mentioned in chapter 4. And so this is a letter to motivate Timothy not to be ashamed, but to be bold for Jesus Christ. And I believe as we go through chapter 1, we won't finish it up this morning, you and I are going to get some motivation and some principles to be bold for Jesus Christ, because some of you struggle with this. Some of you have a type B personality like Timothy. Some of you are more introverted. Some of you struggle with speaking up for Jesus Christ. We all do. And we all want to grow in being bold for Jesus Christ. And so what are the principles by which you and I can be bold for Christ or grow in being unashamed for Christ? Let me share four of them with you this morning. The first principle that you and I must apply if we're going to be bold for Christ is that we must remember godly servants from the past who were bold. We must remember godly servants from the past who were bold. Notice, if you will, verse 1 of 2 Timothy chapter 1. He identifies himself, Paul, and by the way, that word Paul in the Greek means little. Saul was his Hebrew name, Paul was his Roman name, and the reason why it's called little, because we know from extra biblical literature that the apostle Paul was little. He was small. In fact, one description of the apostle Paul says that he was short in stature, he was bald, he had thick eyebrows, he had a pointy nose, and he was bold-legged. That was the description of the Apostle Paul. That man turned the world upside down. And so he identifies himself as Paul, which means little. And then he says this, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will. In other words, Paul didn't apply to be an apostle. It was something that God gave to him. It was a commission. It was a call. What is an apostle? An apostle is someone who is chosen by God and sent out with a special mission, and they have the authority of the one who sent them. So the apostle Paul was conscripted to be an apostle. He was sent out by Jesus Christ, and he had the full authority of Jesus Christ. Paul would often open his letters up with Paul an apostle because he wanted to show that his letters were not his opinion. They come from Jesus Christ. Therefore, whatever Paul said had apostolic authority that came directly from Jesus Christ. Are there apostles today? The answer is no. There were the 12 or the 13 apostles. Today, we have apostles in the sense of church planners, missionaries, but they are unique to the early church because they were given revelation. You say, well, if Timothy was his friend, why does he identify himself as an apostle? Because this letter wasn't just written to Timothy. 
it was probably going to be read by the church at Ephesus where Timothy was pastoring. And so Paul wants to establish this letter not only for Timothy, but to let him know that this letter has apostolic authority. And notice Paul's mission in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, for the promise of life in Christ Jesus. In other words, Paul's mission was to preach to other people that they could have eternal life. That is exactly what God promises you and I if we repent of our sins and trust in Jesus Christ. And then he identifies him in verse 2, to Timothy, my dearly loved son. Now, some people think that Paul led Timothy to Christ. That's why he calls him his son. If you read Acts chapter 16, he picked Timothy up on his second missionary journey. And so some people think Paul led Timothy to Christ. I don't think that was the case, as we're going to see later on in the message. It was Timothy's mother and grandmother that led him to Christ. The reason why Paul calls Timothy his son is because Paul was his mentor. Timothy was his protege. And therefore, they had that type of relationship. And then he gives a common salutation, which was common in that day. He says in verse 2, grace, that is God giving us what we don't deserve. We all deserve hell, but God gives us salvation by his grace. It is an unmerited gift. And then mercy is God withholding what we do deserve. Grace is giving me what I don't deserve. Mercy is withholding what I do deserve. And the result is peace. We have peace with God when we receive God's grace and mercy. And notice this grace, mercy, and peace comes from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. And then I want you to focus in on verse 3 because this ties to the point that I just made about being bold for Jesus Christ. We must remember godly servants from the past who were bold. And notice what he says in verse 3. I thank God whom I serve. And by the way, that word serve is used of priests in the Old Testament who served God in the temple. He says, I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience, here it is, as my ancestors did. Now, why would Paul be saying this to Timothy? He's trying to motivate him. And he's trying to say, Timothy, I'm in a long line of servants of God. Think about my ancestors, Timothy, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Abraham, King David, all the prophets. And what he's telling Timothy is, I serve God just as my ancestors did. And Timothy, by implication, you are part of that chain or that line of ancestors who serve God. And so, Timothy, I want you to remember those who served God in the past who were bold. That's the implication that he is driving home to Timothy. He's telling Timothy, I serve God, Timothy, with a clear conscience. What does it mean to serve God with a clear conscience? It means you don't have a conscience that accuses you. You all know when you do something wrong, that still small voice that says you shouldn't have done that. Your conscience is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit works through your conscience. Your conscience is in your mind, and your conscience responds to how it's programmed. So if your conscience is programmed by the Word of God or an upbringing where it was word-saturated, when you lie, your conscience bell rings. When you steal, your conscience bell rings. When you say something wrong, your conscience bell rings. And so he says, I serve God like my ancestors did with a clear conscience. Does that mean they were perfect? No. He's saying, Timothy, I'm passing the baton down to you. I want you to serve God. I want you to remember that they were bold. And if you look back and see that they serve God boldly, that should serve as a motivation for you and I to serve God boldly. I remember in high school, I ran the 220 relay. 
I played football, and then I ran track in the offseason. Now, I wasn't a long-distance runner. I was more of a sprinter. And so if you know anything about the 220 relay, we called it Where's the Beef? Because it was football players. You had to take the baton, and you had a leg that you had to run as fast as you could, and you had to hand that baton off to the next runner, and then he would hand it off to the next runner. That's exactly what Paul is saying to Timothy. Our ancestors served God boldly. They've passed the baton to me, and Timothy, I'm passing it to you. And so one of the ways that you and I develop boldness in our Christian life, one of the ways that we are unashamed for Christ is to remember servants in the past who have served God boldly. You know what that does? It inspires us to serve God now. I can tell you this. When I read the stories and Voice of the Martyrs, and I read about the Christians that are persecuted, you know what it does? It emboldens me to be more bold for Jesus Christ. When I read biographies of Christians who have suffered for their faith, who have taken a stand for Christ, who were burned at the stake, or they were bold, you know what that causes me to do? It inspires me to take a stand for Jesus Christ. Recently, there was a missionary that died. He was a young kid. His name was John Chow. John Chow, from the time he was young, he got saved in high school. He lived in Oregon. He had a desire to reach people that had never been reached, kind of like Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott went to the Aka Indians and was ended up speared to death. Well, this young gentleman, John Chow, that's a picture of him, wanted to reach people in this remote area off of the continent of India. It's the North Sentinel Island. It's very remote. And he wanted to reach the natives there that had never been reached before. They had no contact with the outside civilized world. They're called the Sentinelese people. In fact, if you went in there, you would bring your sicknesses in there and it would probably decimate the tribe. They had no outside contact. And people that have tried before, they ended up killing them. They were very hostile. Well, this young kid, John Chow, wanted to reach them. And so in order to do that, he had to prepare himself physically as well as spiritually. And here is what someone said about John Chow and what motivated him. And I quote, During this retreat, Chow kept his mountain climber's body hard with triangle push-ups, leg tucks, and body squats. That's how he kept himself in shape. But I want you to notice what they said about his spiritual soul. But it was his soul that he primarily fortified with prayer, and then notice what it says, and by reading a history of the tribulations faced by pioneering American missionaries in Southeast Asia who were an inspiration to him. And then it says this in terms of what he prayed, and I quote, God, I thank you for choosing me before I was even yet formed in my mother's womb to be your messenger of your good news. May your kingdom, your rule, and reign come now to North Sentinel Island, end quote. You know what inspired him was reading about all those missionaries who went to reach unreached people groups. That inspired him to do what he was going to do. In fact, he said Jim Elliott inspired him because Jim Elliott was killed. Him and his cohorts were speared to death. If you've never seen the movie, The End of the Spear, you've got to rent it and see it. He was inspired by that. You say, okay, Mike, what happened? Did he reach those people? Well, he made initial contact with them, and he started to speak to them. They ended up spearing him to death. They found his body 
on the shore. And I was reading Rolling Stone magazine, and they were talking about what a waste of life and what an extremist, and they were mocking this kid for his face, saying it was a waste. He didn't do anything. Well, listen, from God's perspective, it's not a waste. But you know what inspired him? Was people from the past. And so listen, if you're struggling with boldness, read about people in the Bible that were bold. Read biographies of other Christians. Read biographies of other saints that labored for God that were bold in their faith. You're not going to be perfectly bold, neither am I. But you know what? When I read historically what God has done through men and women, you know what it does? It motivates me. I think about George Mueller. George Mueller started 30 orphanages for children, and he decided that he was not going to mention his needs to anyone. He was just going to talk to God. If you read his biographies, you see where God provided breakfast, lunch, and dinner for all of those orphans every day for 30 years. And you know what that does? It builds your faith to pray and to trust God. And so study and read about people of the past. There's a second way that you and I can grow in our boldness for Jesus Christ, and that is this. Ask others to pray for you. Ask others to pray for you. Notice, if you will, verse 3 of 2 Timothy chapter 1. He says to Timothy, I thank God, whom I serve with a clear conscience as my ancestors did, when I constantly remember you, Timothy, in my prayers day and night. Paul prayed for Timothy day and night. Now remember, he's in an inhospitable dungeon. Paul didn't have a lot of the amenities that he did in his first Roman imprisonment. But one of the things that Paul did was he prayed for Timothy day and night because he knew that Timothy needed strength. Timothy was disengaging from serving the Lord Jesus Christ. He was struggling with timidity because he was dealing with false teachers in the church and he was dealing with persecution on the outside. And so Timothy needed the prayers of Paul in order to strengthen him. Now listen, we all know as Christians that we are to ask other people to pray for us, and all of us do this from time to time. When you got surgery, when you're dealing with a decision you have to make, you ask other people to pray for you for wisdom. But here's a novel concept that many of us don't think about, and that is this. How many of us develop prayer partners? A prayer partner is someone who you covenant with who will pray for you that you will become more bold in your faith. They pray for you every single day, just like Paul prayed for Timothy, and maybe you pray for them. In fact, it's incumbent upon us as Christians that we have prayer partners. I was reading a story this week about a woman who married a man who was in the military, and they moved from city to city. And they went to this particular city, and he got deployed for a year. And so she was struggling raising three kids by herself. She was somewhat alone. And so she decided to have a prayer partner, and here's her story of how it came about, and I quote. She said, I'll never forget the first time I heard the foreign concept of having a prayer partner. We were a new family, uh, military family in town, and my husband was deployed overseas. I was struggling with isolation, postpartum depression, and desperately searching for any semblance of confidence in my mothering. Honestly, I felt like a flat-out failure as a mom. Then two mentors introduced me to the idea of having a prayer partner. They told me stories of their own prayer partners over the span of many decades. They made it sound like such a joy and a lifeline, so doable and unintimidating. In the loneliness of all my cross-country moves, I loved the idea of building a friendship around prayer, and even better, establishing a friendship that would have lifelong purpose and eternal impact. 
I ended up taking my mentor's advice and asked another young mom to partner with me in prayer. We had a learning curve, as any friendship does. But braving this new relationship was life-altering and game-changing. Linking arms with my prayer partner taught me how to actively partner with the Holy Spirit. My confidence in motherhood and many other callings quickly transferred from the shaky ground of my own abilities to an unshakable confidence in the Lord's power. Together we learned to trust God to protect, provide, and be everything that we need to survive. And she ends by saying this, turns out my mentors were right. A prayer partner truly is a lifeline. Now I can't imagine doing life without one, end quote. If you want to develop in your boldness, get people to pray for you. Develop a prayer partner. The problem is a lot of Christians don't have relationships. They come to church, they leave, they're not connected to other people. And so here's your assignment for this month. Find somebody that will become your prayer partner. You will pray for them, they will pray for you, and specifically ask them to give you boldness, to pray to God that God would grant you greater boldness in your walk with Jesus Christ. And so if you want to grow in terms of not being ashamed, number one, you need to remember those who served God in the past, our ancestors as it were, they were bold, that inspires us to be bold, and secondly, you need to have other people pray for you. There's a third principle if you want to develop boldness in your life, and that is develop loving, accountable relationships. Develop loving, accountable relationships. Notice, if you will, verse 4. Paul says, remembering your tears, Timothy, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. Stop right there. He says, Timothy, when I was arrested, I remember you started to cry. He saw his eyes well up with tears, and no doubt he probably hugged the Apostle Paul. And he says, Timothy, I really want to see you so that I may be filled with joy. You see, the Apostle Paul was alone in the dungeon, and if you read 2 Timothy, many had forsaken him. In chapter 4, he says, I was delivered from the lion's mouth. Who is he talking about there? He's talking about Nero. At his first defense, he said, no one came by my side, the apostle Paul said. It's almost path. There's a lot of pathos there. Paul is struggling with loneliness. A lot of people forsook him. And so he says to Timothy, Timothy, I remember your tears and I long to see you. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 9, here is what he said to Timothy, do your best to come to me quickly. Paul was struggling with loneliness, and he had an intimate relationship with Timothy. This wasn't a casual friendship. This relationship brought him joy. This relationship was not only a friendship, but it was a mentor-protege relationship. There was accountability built in. The Bible says, iron sharpens iron. Have you ever had a relationship with, like that? You know, we all have friendships, and there's different levels of friendships. Some people we're casual acquaintances with, and then there are others that we may do things periodically with them here and there, but then there are those friendships that go much deeper. I had a friend like that in high school. I've been blessed over the years to have some great guy friends. I had this one particular friend in high school. We started to be friends during football. And then in college, we stayed in touch, even though we didn't go to the same college, and we both were walking with God. We both loved the Miami Hurricanes. We both loved to talk theology. He went to Dallas Seminary. He was instrumental in getting me to go to seminary. And so through the years, we did conferences together, et cetera, et cetera. We shared life together. 
And then after 30 years, he cut me off. And it was crushing. I told my wife, I said, this hurts. You say, well, why did he do that? He started to disagree theologically, and I believe he went liberal in his theology, and he couldn't handle it. And I said, Dave, I don't agree with you, but I said, I still love you. You're still my friend. And he couldn't handle it. His politics went very liberal, and the next thing you knew, boom, no longer friends. I haven't talked to him in three years. So I understand the pain and the anguish. I understand what it is to have a close friendship, but also know the pain of losing that type of friendship. You say, well, Mike, how does that help me in being bold? Because listen, when you are accountable and you are in relationships with other people, that serves as a built-in accountability to help me in my walk with God. Because listen, we're all tempted to drift from our walk with God. We're all tempted to not read the Word and pray. And if we're not careful, we can go weeks without reading the Word and praying, and we get cold in our walk with God. And when you have those relationships, whether it's a small group or you meet with someone one-on-one, you know what that does? That helps reinvigorate you spiritually. Iron sharpens iron. And listen, Paul had a casual friendship with Timothy. They were close, and it was just a friendship, but it was also a mentor-protege relationship. How do I know? Because he wrote him two letters. He wrote him 1 Timothy, and he wrote him 2 Timothy. And again, in these letters, he gives 25 imperatives, which are commands in the Greek. So he's exhorting Timothy. He's holding him accountable. And so you know what? When I'm connected to other Christians that are on fire, you know what happens? It's contagious. It rubs off. When they're on fire, it's going to help you be on fire. Now, of course, it's dangerous when both of you are cold. But sometimes when you both get together and you realize that you're struggling, that reignites the fire. And so we need to be connected to other people in relationships where we can have mutual accountability to one another. This week I went by John Pappas's office and him and I were talking and he was talking about his older daughter, Alea, and he was telling me how bold she is in her faith for Jesus Christ. And he was saying, it's inspiring to me, he said, because no matter where we are, she'll walk up to total strangers and begin to greet them and begin to talk to them, and she will share her faith with Jesus Christ. And he says, when I watch my daughter do this, he says, it inspires me. It inspires me. And here's a young girl. And sometimes a family relationship is the best context because that's where discipleship happens, mom and dad and the kids. When they see your faith, that rubs off on them, and sometimes kids are a rebuke to the parents, and sometimes the kids will challenge the parents. And so if you want to grow in your boldness, you got to be connected to other people. That's why Sunday morning is not enough. you got to be in a small group. you got to get with other people. There's too many Lone Ranger Christianity mentality in the American church. We have this idea that we're independent. We're far less communal in the American church than other countries. When I've done missions trips overseas, they're far more connected relationally. In America, we are about the task. Task-driven. I got to get this done. I got to get that done. We don't have meaningful relationships. Well, there's one final principle that Paul gives Timothy here to help him grow in his boldness for Jesus Christ, and that is this. Be saved in a committed believer. Be a saved, committed believer. Notice, if you will, verse 5. He says, clearly, recalling your sincere faith. 
And after he thought about Timothy and the tears that Timothy shed when the Apostle Paul was arrested, it reminded Paul of Timothy's sincere faith. He says, clearly recalling your sincere faith. What does it mean to have a sincere faith? The Greek word here means an unhypocritical faith. In other words, you're not a hypocrite as a lifestyle. Now, Mike Nimmer is a hypocrite. I commit acts of hypocrisy, and so do you. You know what a hypocrite is? You say one thing, you do the opposite. We're all hypocrites in this room. We all commit acts of hypocrisy because none of us perfectly aligns with what we believe. Our behavior does not always perfectly uh, align with our behavior. But listen carefully. There's a difference between acts of hypocrisy and a lifestyle of hypocrisy. And listen, the American church today is glutted with hypocrites who are lifestyle hypocrites. And you know what? They play the role as Christian. Jesus said he's going to separate the wheat from the tare on the day of judgment. Tares look just like the wheat. And he says you can't often separate them. There are people that look Christian, they talk Christian, they quack Christian, but they're not really Christian. They don't have a sincere faith. And Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 on the day of judgment, many are going to stand before him and say, Lord, Lord, I did all these things in your name. I did miracles. I casted out devils, blah, 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 blah. And Jesus will look at them and say, depart from me. I never what? I never knew you. Paul says, Timothy, I know that's not true of you. I know when I think about you, Timothy, you traveled with me on my missionary journeys. I know you have a sincere faith. And it started with your grandmother Lois, and then in your mother Eunice, and I am convinced is in you also. Listen, Timothy had a godly heritage. His mother and grandmother led him to saving faith in Jesus Christ. They passed down their faith to Timothy, and he says, Timothy, I know based on your godly heritage that you are a genuine, saved individual. His mother and his grandmother sang to Timothy the songs of Zion, and they whispered to Timothy the prayers of Moses. In fact, in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, he says it a different way in 2 Timothy. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. He learned the Jewish scriptures from the time he was young. You know those who taught you, Lois and Eunice, And you know that from childhood you have known the sacred scriptures which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Timothy was well taught. He had a father who was not saved. He was a Greek, according to Acts chapter 16. But his mother and his grandmother gave him a godly heritage. They passed the truth down. I remember when my kids were growing up, I have three daughters. And one of the things that I tried to do, my wife did this when she homeschooled them, we tried to be intentional about reading them Bible stories and praying with them on a regular basis. Did we do it perfectly? No. But we were intentional about pouring our faith into them. And you know what the proverb says, train up a child in the way he should go and he won't what? Depart from it. By the way, let me give you a clarification with that verse. That verse is not a guarantee that if you raise your child to follow the Lord, that they will always follow the Lord. That's not the nature of proverbial literature. Proverbs are general truths that are generally true. They are not absolute truths. That's the nature of Proverbs. So there's not always a guarantee that if you inculcate the truth into your children that they will follow, but it is a general principle. And so we try to do that with our children. And by the way, you're not responsible as a parent. If your child walks away 
or does things that are evil, and you try to model the truth for them and you try to teach them, you're not always responsible for that. But listen, Timothy had a mother and a grandmother that gave him the truth, and Paul says, look, Timothy, I know your faith is genuine, and I know that you're a committed believer. I know, Timothy, that you are a follower and not a fan. You say, what's a follower versus a fan? Well, there was a guy named Eidelman who wrote a book called Not a Fan. If you've never read the book, it's a great book. I read it years ago. And Eidelman talks about there's a difference between being a fan of Jesus Christ and a follower of Jesus Christ. A fan is someone who goes to a football game or a soccer game, and what do they do? They cheer for the crowd, right? You have the fans in the stadium, and what they're doing is they're not involved. They're cheering for their team. Sometimes they're cursing their team. Sometimes they're criticizing the coaches. Those are fans. But then you have followers, The followers, he says, are those on the field. Those are the 22 football players, 11 on the offense, 11 on the defense. They're involved. They're engaged. They're not fans. They're followers. They are committed. And so what God wants in the American church is genuine believers that are followers and not fans. And the church in America is glutted with fans and not followers. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. That is a follower of Jesus Christ. In fact, one church sign said this, God does not want weekend visitations, but he wants full custody. He doesn't want weekend visitations, but he wants full custody. John Wesley, the famous Methodist preacher, said this, and I quote, Give me a hundred men who fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God, and I will shake the world, end quote. That's a follower. And listen, too many Christians in the church, they want to come to church, they want to be a fan, they want to say, hey, make sure you preach good sermons, pastor, that entertain me, make sure the worship is good, And make sure that things are on schedule, but listen, don't ask me to get involved. Don't ask me to follow Jesus Christ because I want to be a fence sitter. And listen, that's why the church in America is not making an impact. We got too many fans. We don't have enough followers. And so if you want to grow in your boldness, you got to be a genuine, committed believer. Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, when I think about you, I know you have a sincere faith because you have a godly heritage. Your mother and your grandmother passed the truth down to you, Timothy, and I know you have followed the sacred scriptures from the time you were little. And so he's motivating Timothy to say, hey, Timothy, continue in what you have been taught. Continue in what you have been taught. Follow. So I ask you this morning, are you a committed believer? Some of you are doing this. You're straddling you got one foot in the world, one foot in Christianity. Now, we got to live in the world. I get that. But some of you got your foot in the world, and you are bowing to the things of this age, but at the same time, you are a believer, and you're trying to somewhat follow God, but you're straddling the fence. And you know what God says? You can't do that. Either be here or be here. Jesus said, I would rather you be hot or cold. He said, because you're lukewarm, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. And so listen, people that are non-committal or straddle the fence, they will not be bold for Jesus Christ, especially when the test comes. 
When the test comes during the tribulation, it is going to weed out those who are not bold for Jesus Christ and not committed. Those people that are fake, that are straddling the fence, that are not sincere in their faith, you know what tribulation does? It separates the wheat from the tare. And so God wants us to be genuine, committed believers. So I ask you this morning as we close, are you a real saved individual or are you just playing church? There's a difference between believing and receiving. I can believe here, but if I receive Christ as my personal Lord and Savior, and then am I following him? Albeit it's not going to be perfect, I mess up all the time. Ask my wife. Ask my kids. But you know what? You keep a short account of sin, and you keep following the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, as we close, just as a footnote, this passage implies that parents have the responsibility to pass their faith down to their kids. As a parent, you have to be intentional, even as a grandparent. I ordered the Evangi Cube. It's a little cube that gives the gospel, and it visualizes it. It's a great tool. They make it this big, and they make it real big. I've used it on mission trips. I called my daughter and said, I'm ordering one for you and sending it to the house. So my, my daughters, I sent the cube, and I said, I want you to go over the cube with the grandchildren. And whenever I go back to South Carolina and visit, I pull out the cube and go over it with my grandchildren. Because grand, grandparents still have influence. And as a parent, you got to be intentional of inculcating the truth. And listen, you teach it, and then you model it. Teaching it is like taking a nail and putting in a piece of plywood. Modeling it is like driving the nail in the wood. That's what God calls us to do. So how can you and I be unashamed for Jesus Christ? There are four ways so far that Paul gives us in 2 Timothy chapter 1. Number one... Remember godly servants from the past. They will inspire you to be bold. Secondly, ask others to pray for you. Develop a prayer partner. Thirdly, develop loving, accountable relationships. And then finally, be a saved, committed believer. Now come back next week and we'll continue in these principles of how to grow in our boldness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word to us. Thank you for reminding us of the truth. And I pray this morning, Lord God, that all of us would grow in our boldness for you, that we would not be ashamed. And when we are, we would confess it. God, we know you're merciful, you're patient with us. You don't deal with us according to our sin. God, I pray that all of us here would grow in boldness. I pray that the American church would grow in boldness. And that you would raise up unhypocritical Christians that are genuine in their faith and their commitment, even though not perfect. And if you're sitting here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to ask you to consider repenting of your sins and asking him to save you from your sin. And if you say, Jesus, save me. I've been playing games, but I trust in you as my Lord and Savior, and I surrender my life to you. Talk to me after the service. Father, we thank you for all that you're doing in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Let's stand together as we worship our great God. And don't forget, as you go out this week, we have ABC cards in the lobby. Grab them, hand them to a waiter, waitress, find different ways to reach out to people. And don't forget to invite people to our Christmas services. I'm going to give the gospel. And uh, let's continue to be salt and light. Let's worship together.